and welcome to the podcast of the Prison Officers Association, the UK's largest professional union for prison, correctional and secure psychiatric workers with over 30,000 members. In this episode, National Chair Mark Fairhurst and General Secretary Steve Gillen look back at the union's annual conference, held at the beginning of May in Eastbourne. Like most unions, the POA's annual conference is one of the focal points of the year, a key event for accountability, adoption of new policies, and a vital gathering of the POA family. But the conference is important in other ways too, with politicians, organisations who provide key services to POA members, and even representatives from employers attending as guests. I started off by asking Steve how and why this was important. Yeah, I think it's vitally important that a broad brush of people actually come to our conference, especially, uh, you know, the political parties, because um, they say plenty in the media, but they don't actually understand uh, prison officers and related grades or indeed our trade union and some of the stuff, you know, that our members see day in, day out. So I think when they can hear it with their own ears, um, uh, then that's a good thing, to be honest with you. I mean, both the main political parties in Great Britain are the Conservatives and the Labour Party. There's no doubt about it. Uh, and it's, so it's good, you know, people like Steve Reid, uh, who was only elected in 2012, to actually hear the history of some of the issues that affect us, such as, you know, uh, the right not to strike at the moment uh, and having a permanent injunction and contempt of court judgment against us. So I think it's important that they understand history because we are campaigning uh, with Labour to restore our trade union rights. So it's good for them to fully understand it. Yeah, Mark, as Steve has said, uh, the Shadow Secretary of State for Justice, uh, Steve Reid was in attendance. There were also Rachel Max, Rachel Maskell and Mary Foy, two other la- Labour MPs. How would you describe the relationship with Labour at the moment? Well, I think it's as positive as it's always been with the Labour Party. They seem to want to change things for the better for our members. So we've always had that positive relationship of saying that, you know, we get on with politicians from all political parties and we've got positive relationships with the Tory party as well, trying to improve benefits for our members. But what does it for me is if you are in opposition, you need to put in your manifesto a commitment that will change the lives of prison officers, which will gain new support from POA members. And we're only asking for two things. And one would be to restore our right to strike, which is the basic human right of any worker to withdraw their labour. And the other is to restore our retirement age to 60. If they put those two commitments in their manifesto, then they would get a lot of support from POA members. And similarly, if the Tory party suddenly changed their stance and said, we'll give you those things, then we would praise them for that as well. So the proof is in the pudding. We mustn't look back. We must look forward. And I would say at this moment in time, we have positive relationships with all political parties, including the government. But it's looking more and more likely that the Labour Party will get in at the next general election. And we're building those relationships. They know what we want. Now let's see if they can deliver. Indeed. Indeed. Um, Steve, the contribution from uh, the TUC General Secretary, Paul Novak, seemed to be particularly well received. 
Do you think it's important to understand how others in the trade union movement see the PLA? Yeah, it's vitally important because myself and Mark, predominantly as as uh, General Secretary and National Chairman, we're the sort of faith uh, of the National Executive Committee and indeed uh, our members. And behind the scenes, we have regular dialogue with the TUC, me through the General Council and TUC Executive Committee, but also Mark, when he goes to the TUC conference, yeah, you know, when Mark speaks, other trade unions listen. The, the reality is as well, we do a lot of our bidding with other trade unions, we're supportive of other trade unions, and we have got a good reputation amongst the trade union movement. And I think that's important. You know, we heard what Paul had to say about the POA uh, and the trade union movement in general. And we welcome that. Paul's been around a long time, not as General Secretary, obviously, because he's just taken over. But he knows the POA inside out because myself and Mark uh, continually brief him on a whole variety of subjects. And you only need to tell Paul something once and, and he gets it. You know, so Paul doesn't miss an opportunity when he's with politicians, actually. And he talks about the POA as well in not having the right to strike and the ridiculous pension age uh, that we have currently uh, linked to the state pension age. So Paul knows everything. And I think it's important that you get other unions supporting you as we do support other unions, quite frankly. I think that that sort of harmony is vitally important because no trade union can stand by themselves and pretend that they can just do everything themselves. You, you've got to have that network of trade unions and keep that dialogue up so that they're well versed in our issues and we're we're well well versed in their issues as well it's easy to forget isn't it how others see us and the, the very good standing deservedly good standing the poa has in the, the union movement now on the conference floor and at fringe events there were what seemed to be very passionate debates on the scourge of razors in prisons the lack of support for women members undergoing ivf and the failure of the employer to recognize the impact of long covid which debates stood out for, for both of you and, and why was that mark for me i had to sit and listen to one of my female colleagues relay her personal experience about the appalling treatment she had received at work because she was going through ivf treatment the fact that her line managers were unsympathetic had no empathy didn't understand what she was forced to go through because IVF isn't also always successful on the first attempt and it wasn't for her and when you get managers trying to bully her into returning to full duties and and quoting policy which made me made me laugh you're only allowed 13 weeks on restricted duties you've got to return to full duties I wish they'd stick to policy when it came to disciplining my members because they never do and yet they throw it out there when it suits them absolutely atrocious treatment at work and did you know that we haven't got a policy that strictly relates to ivf no ivf policy in place so the maximum amount of special leave you will get granted for going through ivf is five days in a calendar year that's not good enough this is traumatic experiences for a lot of people and then we had another delegate relay her personal experience you know she was told at a young age she'll never be able to conceive and was getting off-the-cuff comments from her managers. It's absolutely disgraceful and it really winds me up. So we're determined over the next 12 months to build 
that women in the workplace support and get that IVF policy in place. Although, don't hold your breath, the, the way the MOJ and HMPPS work, you know, God knows when that will come into play, but we'll certainly force that issue. So that really stood out for me, the atrocious treatment of our members at work through no fault of their own, because they dare to want a family. You know, that has to change. We're better than that. We've got to be better than that as an employer. You know, let's get it sorted and let's have a bit of empathy for, for your employees and our members. Let's hope HMPPS are listening loud and clear to that. I have a feeling they probably are. Steve, what, what was the standout debate or, or subject matter well, for you? I think there was a couple. I mean, clearly the sexual harassment conference paper and the race action plan, big agenda items that both Mark and myself have been determined to drive forward to try and ensure that our women members are protected, particularly our women members are protected in the workplace because we've both been around 30-odd years. We, we, we know the history. We know that sometimes it was an uncomfortable zone for our members and people should feel safe at work. And I think we've got to lead by example. If we're going to criticise our employer, we've got to get it right in our own trade union. And I think both those policies were fantastic. But you, you did mention this, the, the actual standout debate for me. The, the standout debate was pretty clear in my mind, and, and that was about when Mark challenged the minister and responded uh, to the minister. And he'd done it in a passionate, professional and measured manner. because. At one point, you know, the minister was getting a bit of heckling from the floor and Mark actually calmed that down simply by saying that Damien Hines is a decent man and he's actually had the bottle to come to our conference. But to, at the same time, Mark got the questions asked that was important to our members on a variety of issues, particularly pensionage and other in the youth justice estate and so forth. So uh, that was the bit for me. I think Mark led by example on that particular issue and put the minister uh, under a little bit of pressure, I think. I think it was important to conference for the prisons minister to see the strength of feeling over the really important issues that our members are facing. The main one being, give us our retirement age of 60 back. And the fact that he couldn't answer a simple question with yes or no says it all for me. And I know he's done different to any other politician in that respect, but it's not a hard thing to say, is it? Do you agree that prison officers cannot work till the age of 68? Yes or no? Just answer the question. He needed to see that. And I'm glad he has, because it's no good me and Steve sitting in a room with him telling him that's the strength of feeling. He's witnessed it for himself now. Time to do something about it. Oh, do, you, do both of you think that there's, a, there's almost like a, a common theme running through all these issues, which is, it's partly a lack of political will, it's partly a lack of empathy, and it's partly just disorganisation. I think it's a lot to do with common sense. Who on earth, with an iota of common sense, would conclude that a prison officer aged 65, 66, 67 or 68 could possibly work in what is undoubtedly the most hostile and violent workplace of any workplace in the world? You can't do it. Physically, you couldn't do it. Mentally, you certainly couldn't do it. More and more people are getting diagnosed with PTSD because of the trauma they witness and deal with at work. You just can't do it. You can't say to us in one breath, 
you're not getting the right to strike back because you're such an essential public service. We couldn't possibly allow you to take industrial action. You know, that would create a danger to the public and the infrastructure of our society. And then in the second breath, say, but we're not going to treat you like police constables or firefighters who are at risk at work. You still got to work to state pension age. It makes no sense at all. So common sense should prevail. And it's not going to cost a great deal of money. In fact, in the long term, it'd be more cost effective to let us retire from the age 60 onwards. So there's that. And again, common sense. The most violent prison cohort we deal with are the under 18s. Yeah, you wouldn't send a police constable into an inner city house in the state to deal with a group of 15, 16 and 17 year olds armed with weapons with just a polo shirt and a body worn video camera. We want protections in place. We want protection for the people we care for in the under 18 estate who are getting their heads stamped on by groups of young thugs. Give us the protections we need. It makes sense. It makes common sense to the public. If you did the referendum now with the general public, do, do you think prison officers should carry power dealing with violent under 18s? They'd overwhelmingly support us. So why can't the politicians? Let's get a grip. Use our common sense. Give us our retirement age of 60 back and give us power in the under 18 estate. In your closing address, you urge people not to be afraid of using the health and safety protocol. What do you think are the barriers that exist to reps and members using the protocol and what can be done to dismantle them? I think there's a lot of members. There's certainly a lot of managers out there who don't even know it exists and certainly don't know that it's legally binding. Yes, I agree. It should be the last resort. But as I said, there's a build up to these events. It doesn't just happen spontaneously. There's a build-up of over days, weeks, months even. So if, if you feel unsafe at work, you've got a right to invoke that protocol. And as soon as you invoke it, your managers must take action. So let's sit down, let's get in a room, let's out, sort out all these issues. Instead of managers consistently ignoring the voice of the front line, we're not saying to you, I feel unsafe because I want a day off work. We're saying it because we feel unsafe and we want you to put it right. So let's sort it out. I mean, you should never be afraid of protecting your health and safety at work and I, I don't buy this attitude from some people that you know oh, i don't want to put my head above the parapet i don't want to put a grievance in i don't want to invoke the health and safety protocol because that will affect my career come on you join the prison service you deal with confrontation every day you're dealing with the worst that society can throw at you and then all of a sudden someone in a suit comes along and says you've got to do it and you don't challenge them i don't buy that at all the, the health and safety protocol came out of a, a dispute at Lindholm Prison, but that protocol is, is in effect just addressing prison service issues within that legally binding protocol. But what people forget is there's also the Health and Safety and Work Act 1974, where section 44 is there about serious and imminent danger. And, and that is a legal document. You go, you go into any prison in the country, right, and it reminds you of your responsibilities under the Health and Safety Work Act. And it's not just to protect yourself. It's actually to protect others as well. Now, of course, it will always come down to interpretation about how that comes into the workplace. And, of course, the employers, the first reaction is always to look and say, well, you're taking on lawful industrial action. And as Mark says, that's not the case because prison officers, by the very nature of the job that they do, they don't want to be taking any form of action at all. But there's always a build-up 
to these sort of things. And sometimes they are raised at local level and the governor just ignores it because they think they can. And we're saying now, well, no, hang on, we've got this legally binding protocol. And I think Mark's right. I think it's dead right. I think there's a lack of knowledge in understanding what the protocol is about. And I think we need to probably do joint training with the prison service, with their managers and our local reps as well, just so that everybody and our members to a wider degree, so that they know what they can and cannot do. Because we don't want people downing tools every five minutes and hiding behind a protocol. If the protocol is, is going to be anything meaningful, then it's got to be acted on in a proper way. And I think the employer knows that, that we don't just down tools, quite frankly, willy-nilly, as Mark says, for a day off or anything like that. But equally, we're not going to accept our members being battered and hospitalised and young prisoners in our care equally getting battered. I mean, I highlighted an issue that was Steve Reed uh, recently about the young prisoner at Cook and Wood. Now, I read the report on him, and he was absolutely beaten to an inch of his life. In fact, he had to be airlifted by helicopter to uh, uh, to hospital. Now, if it wasn't for the professionalism of our members, we could be talking about a death, as Mark said in his opening address. He doesn't want to be talking about the death of a young prisoner and things like that. So we don't just protect each other under that health and safety protocol. We actually protect prisoners in our care as well, quite frankly, and that shouldn't be forgotten. No, and I think that brings us around full circle in a way, doesn't it? The, the importance of having representatives of the employers and politicians and other guests at conferences to hear directly from the front line things that they probably would rather not hear or would might want to uh, shy away or the, from. Or that they might um, not even be aware of as politicians because they might not be getting the briefings uh, from, the, or from the respective employers about what is actually happening around this day. So I think it's vitally important that they hear it firsthand. Steve, what, what do you think this year's conference says about the state and the health of the POA? I've been really encouraged, and I've been around a conference since the early 90s. So I think this was my 30th conference, actually, that I've attended. And I've got to say, the last two years, uh, with a mixture of experienced branch officials and young officials coming through, uh, and the executive as well, and full-time officers, I, I think there's a togetherness in this union. I think I've been around when people have said in the past, Oh, the POAs aren't the most expensive diary in the world and they'll fold like a pack of cards because uh, no one's interested in the POA. But do you know what? I, I reckon once I've long gone, I hope for the POAs there for another 100 years or so. Um, I, I think we're in a good position. I think we've got a good membership. I think we've got decent branch officials. We've certainly got a good national chairman and executive. Uh, and I'm heartened, to be honest with you, for the future. I, I think. Um, the PRA does punch above its weight, and we don't have the right to take industrial action apart from in certain sectors of our, our union. And even then, we're not, not balloting every five minutes to take everybody out. So the sky isn't going to cave in if there's a political party out there in government brave enough to restore our rights. But I think we've got a real bright future in the PRA with the talent that's around. My thanks to Mark and Steve for giving such a clear and colourful reflection on what was an important week for the union. 
you can catch most of the keynote speeches on the Union's Facebook feed. And information about the role of conference and all the ways in which the Union works hard on behalf of the members can be found on the Union's website at poauk.org.uk. Thank you for listening. We hope that you have enjoyed what you have heard and will join us for the next episode of the POA podcast. Thank you and goodbye.